Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, author Andrew Flory joins Nate to talk about his book, I Hear a Symphony, Motown and Crossover R&B. In this episode, Andrew and Nate talk about Barry Gordy, the man behind the most successful American independent record label of all time, and the incredible stable of talents he assembled, managed, and motivated to rule not only R&B, but the pop world itself in the 1960s and 70s. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined today by Andrew Flory, or should I say Dr. Andrew Flory? Wow, just call me Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Flory, author of I Hear a Symphony, Motown and Crossover R&B. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Nate. Sure. And and uh, what I'm hoping to get across in this show, the thing that's been really blowing me away, I've been familiar with Motown as any moderately culturally aware American would be in my generation, but in in the last couple of years, I've been re- you know diving in and researching and preparing for this show. And the thing that's really blown me away lately is the magnitude of Barry Gordy's accomplishment, not just as a business person, but as a songwriter and a producer and a meta producer. I I really didn't realize how much. Um, of a creative force he was in the late 50s with Jackie Wilson, and then there's the songwriter of Money and and Do You Love Me and other early Motown hits, but also how much he supervised and built the talent stable of producers like Smokey Robinson, Mickey Stevenson, Holland Dozier Holland, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm hoping we can convey some of that uh, in this episode. It's, it's going to be a rush to get it in because the magnitude of the Motown accomplishment is just immense. I'd say it's pretty much unparalleled in American pop music culture. Would you agree? Uh, I completely agree. I mean, we could probably just uh, read lists of names for the next hour and uh, fill up the entire time. (laughs) Yeah. If if we just went through their number one records, we could do that. Right. Right. Um, uh, You know, the, I've never thought about Gordy's accomplishments as a meta producer, but I think that's a really apt way to put it. Um, you know, he he slowly worked his way into the business, and and the more I looked into it and researched it, um, uh, 
uh, I realized that the, that I don't think there was ever a magic moment. It was just a a slow acculturation into the music business, starting as a songwriter and learning that trade, and really even starting before that and uh, learning about the music business from his siblings who were working at the Flame Show Bar in Detroit as um, as vendors and uh, getting a glimpse into how the inner workings of the music business worked. And then he ran a record store for a little while uh, that didn't work. Uh, and then tried his hand at songwriting and really became a successful songwriter and then slowly moved one step at a time into the entertainment business. It became even bigger than the music business. So in many ways, a lot of the things that you say that he... Uh, and and you're right. He he brought these people in, and in many ways taught them uh, how to do their jobs. Uh, uh, he uh, produced, so he ran the recording sessions and uh, oversaw the recording and creative processes for mo- uh, most of the Motown records in the first uh, couple of years. And the young producers that came along after him, um, Bob Bateman and Brian Holland and Smokey Robinson, uh, I think it's, it's arguable, and they, they would probably tell you the same thing, that they were just copying what he taught them. And so um, as Gordy took on new challenges and, um, in fact, it kind of needed to move up into the more business-oriented things to, to move to the next level, um, uh, these people started uh, taking the other more creative jobs. He he moved more out of the creative. Uh, he moved in and out of the musical creative atmosphere uh, during the mid and late 1960s and even during the 1970s, but inserted himself when he needed to um, and when he wanted to uh, and took on new challenges. And he's just an amazing, uh, amazing character in the history of popular music. Somebody who... Uh, took on this challenge, uh, especially the the challenge of race and the challenge of economics, and um, took it to to a different level in the in the early 1960s. Uh, again, this is a fluid thing. Uh, it wasn't that as that Motown was sort of this uh, magic thing. There were there were precedents. There were uh, black artists and black companies before Motown that were successful, but. Um, in the words of Jerry Wexler, um, um, Barry Gordy did something that everybody thought was impossible. Uh, they took black music performed by black performers and s- sold it to white American teenagers. And uh, uh, people thought that was a line that couldn't be crossed and that um, that uh, it, it would need to be filtered in some way through um, uh, I- I- either white performers or uh, in different market demographics in different ways. But Gordy kind of um, it broke down that wall at a time when American society was changing pretty rapidly. I mean, 1964 and 1965, his his peak early years uh, were, for students of American history, they know that um, things were happening outside of the entertainment business to change uh, the face of uh, race politics in, in the United States. But you know, Motown was uh, was a was a juggernaut of a company at the time, and they they really uh, changed the music business. Absolutely, and this term crossover that you you talk about, um, you define you you describe it in the book that Motown's approach was calculated to transcend the R and B market 
And before long, its music was at the forefront of sweeping challenges to the record industry's longstanding practices of segregation. I mean, and I think their slogan, The Sound of Young America, says it all. This is a company that emerged out of the 50s independent R&B label scene where there were numerous record labels, VJ, Swan, Atlantic, Chess, many of them owned uh, by Jewish entrepreneurs, but some of them, you know, like Don Roby's Peacock Records, yep. owned by, by African-Americans, VJ was owned by African-Americans. But Barry Gordy went for the whole thing. Like, he didn't want to be the biggest black record label. He didn't want to be the biggest R&B label. He wanted to be the biggest label. Yeah, and he, and, and he became, uh, in many ways, the biggest label. Um, yeah, I, what a lot of people don't understand, I mean, um, the, the more that you look into it is, um, uh, I mean, the United States was segregated in the 1940s and 1950s, and, and it was it was legally segregated in a lot of places, and that was reflected in the American music business. It's an uncanny thing, Um the United States, the creativity and music in the United States is it's one of our biggest exports. And it was at, uh, at the time, especially in the late 1950s, when people started going internationally. Uh, but our 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 music markets are kind of weird. I mean, we had this really segregated system for black music that encompassed a whole wide variety of things, um, whether it was radio stations that appealed to black listeners and used um, uh, companies that were targeting uh, black uh, buyers and letting them know that it was okay to shop at their at their place, record stores that were in black neighborhoods, venues. Um, there was a whole um, market. There was a whole sort of uh, web of um, of the music business that was appropriate for people who had dark skin and who were not accepted in mainstream markets. Now, some of this is symbolic. Um, if you are African American or if you're Jewish and you're and you're feeling um, and you're feeling segregated and you're feeling impinged upon, you're, of course, communities, uh, you know, this, this is wrong, and we all know that this is wrong. But uh, some of it's also economic. Uh, the mainstream market was much bigger, and so if you're in the record business, um, you know, it doesn't matter if your skin is blue or red. If uh, the mainstream market is 20 times bigger than the R&B market and you're a business person, you obviously want to break into the mainstream market because you want to sell more records and you want to have more exposure. And so I think it's, it's complicated in, in, in Gordy's case. Um, he was obviously very aware of what we, he was doing in terms of using black-oriented styles and things associated with blackness and black performers and himself as a symbolic black businessman. He was... Emotown was the largest black-owned company for a long time, uh, even when they started tracking those things, and certainly before they they didn't. Um, but he also wanted to make a lot of money, and he wanted to be successful in the business and um, needed to, in some ways, change the business in order to do that. It was a pretty gargantuan task, and he succeeded. And let's hear a song, one of his early uh, co-writing credits with the great Jackie Wilson. This is Reet Petite by Jackie Wilson.
And that was Jackie Wilson singing Barry Gordy's Reet Petite. Tell us a little bit about this. And and one thing I want to focus on is Jackie Wilson, you know, coming out of Billy Ward and the Dominoes and coming out of a gospel background was one of the powerful R&B singers. And, and working with Barry Gordy is really what got him over the top. But he was also somebody who was a classic crossover artist that, you know, Lonely Teardrops that Gordy wrote for him became a big pop hit. And he was one of Elvis's favorite singers. Talk about that strategy that Barry Gordy and Jackie Wilson put together to reach the black audience and then explode into the white pop consciousness. What's interesting, 1956 uh, and 57 and 58, when these, when these hits are coming out, um, it's right at the cusp. It's, it's, you know, I mean, all of this started uh, during and right after the Second World War, and it's slowly um, the, the, uh, the meshing and the Venn diagram closing between uh, the black market and the country market, uh, which, are, which is, was also so separate. Uh, and and the mainstream and the interaction between these things was was it's it's always ever changing. Uh, Jackie Wilson's a fascinating character, you know. Uh, the, the the these hits that Gordy and his um, I mean his he he co-wrote them with Tyrone Carlo and some with his sister Gwen and with lots of people. There was a collective of people, which is another interesting part of the story. Um, they're they're cool hits, and they, and they. They do lots of. They make lots of musical moves that um, that crossover music in the next couple of years uh, uh, p- pattern themselves off off of. So, for example, um, at once you mentioned his gospel background, and he and he does lots of interesting gospel moves with his voice. He's got a very Jackie Wilson had a a fantastic high pitched uh, voice, and he uses lots of um, what what musicologists call melisma. So he sings these big, huge runs. But at the same time, the quality of his voice um, also has this really sort of trained aspect to it. Um, You know, it's got a really tight vibrato. And um, I mean, it's almost as if, if he wanted, he could have, or if it was available to him, he could have been an opera singer, I imagine, Jackie Wilson. And so um, the same holds for the instrumental aspects of these tracks so something like reet petite or lonely teardrop lonely teardrops for example has this really cool um sort of um generic uh, latin beat underneath it um that that's happening um but at the same time it's it it's got this technological sheen and they often use large-scale string arrangements that um that it sent a signal of uh race and class mixing i think this you're mixing an orchestra and an R&B band. Um, you, you know, there are lots of people who uh, mentioned at the time that when they when they heard bands like this, like Jackie Wilson and the Drifters in the in '58 and '59, it was almost as if the radio station was caught in between two channels. Uh, there there are multiple things happening at the same time, and and that's part of the crossover formula that you're talking about. That's touching on different musical and cultural aspects to uh, bring this music to a new audience. And another thing that you brought up was his ability to build teams of collaborators. Like as a songwriter from the very beginning, he was always co-writing songs all the way up to the end of the classic Motown era when when he took the Jackson 5 under his wing and formed a songwriting collective called The Corporation mm-hmm. to write uh, Jack, Jackson 5. Since he was able to build teams of people, which 
I think is what separates him from from contemporaries like Phil Spector, who were just as mus- maybe more musically talented, but couldn't delegate and couldn't build teams. And let's talk about his first sort of protege, Smokey Robinson, and the way that that Barry Gordy taught Smokey to write songs. Yeah, well, Barry Barry Gordy, we we often think about them in the same breath, but Barry was a lot older than Smokey. Um, I mean, when they met, Smokey was was a a pimple-faced teenager almost, you know? I mean, he was really naive, and he had a lot of talent, and he was a good singer, and he had this notebook full of songs that were, they, you know, he, he had lots of ideas, but he didn't understand um, aspects of the both of the music business and even of uh, songwriting. And so Barry Gordy was older. He had kids. He was, he was kind of a middle-aged guy who had already failed a couple of times. And, um, I mean, I think... It's interesting. Collaboration is this is a is a cool thing, and um, it's a powerful word because it implies um, uh, an exchange. And I think Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson, from their earliest days together, had an exchange. Um, it's uh, it's pretty obvious what Gordy was giving to Smokey, which was sort of this tutorial, teaching him standard aspects, how to take his ideas and put them in standard song forms, how to. Um, how to make a live act that was compelling. Um, but I also think Smokey and some of these early artists who had faith in Barry Gordy, who looked at him, whether whether they were naive or not, who looked at him as an older figure who could get them somewhere, helped him too. It, it really kind of fueled his, his confidence and his willingness to keep going and keep trying. So it, I mean, it's, Collaboration is a cool thing at Motown, um, and it's it's controversial, and but it worked, um, and and it and it works in uh, creative settings in lots of different places, not just Motown, but uh, the collaborative web at that company uh, was was pretty extensive, and um, was I think most people agree at the heart of what the creative process. Um, how, why it was successful, why it was so successful, because so many people touched those songs that we know. Uh, we might think of a song like, Where Did Our Love Go? And uh, the first thing you think of is Diana Ross singing that song. But, um, you know, there may have been 30 or 40 people who, in one way or another, touched that song, whether they helped to write it or engineer it or produce it or arrange it or perform on it. Um, so, Having those people and, in, in a sense, giving them the ability to, um, to work in those roles and get good at those, at those roles, was, it was something that Gordy excelled at. And he, he, he came from a middle-class family that was a, um, a family that, that ran businesses. And they ran a print shop, and they ran a grocery store, and a construction company. And they were, they were sort of all over the black middle class businesses of Detroit in the 30s and 40s and 50s, and so he, unlike Spectre, like you say, that's a it's a it's a great analogy because they worked at the same time. In fact, there's a great life interview of them together trying to define the word soul in 1965, and and their their approaches are so different. And uh, you know, Gordy saw the big picture. He understood the big picture, and he understood the umbrella that Motown that he wanted Motown to be, and he created that umbrella. And another concept you talk about uh, in connection with Barry Gordy and Motown is this notion of dialogue. And and I think talk about how they 
use songs like Smokey Robinson's early, I think it was might have been the first single, Got a Job, which was an answer song. And the way that mm-hmm. they dialogued, uh, not just with other songwriters and other performers, but also within Motown. Well, it, that's an interesting concept, and I really struggle with how to deal with this. But I, I, I really, I, I view, and I, and I think it's improf- profitable to view um, music in the '50s and '60s, and, and even lots of modern music in this way. People, um, people who know a lot about music and understand musical relationships often see a one-way, um, a one-way um, uh, conversation between lots of music that. Something will sound like something else. Influence is an, ex- an example of a word that, that is, it, it, it sort of implies a one-way exchange. But I, I, I settled on the, on the idea of dialogue because I really wanted to evoke this idea that um, with multiple songs happening in the music markets at the same time and people being really students of pop music like like Barry Gordy and like lots of people uh, in the pop markets at the time, um, there's there's a sense that there's there convert there are musical and lyrical conversations happening, and so um, one of the principles of Motown's music and anybody who knows this music has probably thought about this, but I really wanted to kind of take it to another level. Um, anybody who knows this music will know that um, early Motown songs sound like other songs, and a lot of Motown songs by particular artists sound like other Motown songs by those same artists. So um, the uh, the answer song "Get a Job" is a very early example of that, and there are lots of early answer songs in the Motown uh, the Motown oeuvre. Uh, and, and for your listeners who don't know what answer songs are, this is these are songs that take a pop song that's uh, uh, often number one at the time. In this case, it was the Silhouettes "Get a Job" that was. Uh, one of the first big crossover doo-wop uh, records, um, and, and it's certainly a big record, 1957, and it and, and it apes that song and basically provides some sort of response to to that song. Now these were really common, especially in country music and in R and B. Um, and so, um, what happens in Motown is that you when you take a when you take a broad view, you start to realize that. Um, as the company starts to have more of its own hits, it starts to perform dialogue within its own ranks. And it's a cool thing that begins as uh, a, a novelty, uh, as a way to maybe grab on the coattails of someone else's hit, and becomes this foundational thing that helps Motown to create its own style. It's a style we still talk about. It's a style that if I had a wedding band and I told them what to play, uh, even if it wasn't a Motown song, I could tell them to play in a Motown style. Um, That's a really rare thing. I mean, there are very, very few uh, corporate entities, record companies, that you can say have a quote-unquote style. We don't talk about an Atlantic style. We don't talk... I guess we talk about a chess blues style, maybe, but um, A and M A and M doesn't have a style. It's an extremely successful independent record company, but we still think about Motown not in terms of its economic achievements completely, but also the music. Uh, when people hear uh, this Motown style, even if it's not a Motown record, 
um, they they know what it is and they call it Motown. And let's hear one of those records when they were still forming that style. This is The Contours singing Barry Gordy's Do You Love Me. Contours, doing a song that Barry Gordy co-wrote called Do You Love Me? And you talk about how the house band was the now, now known as the Funk Brothers, although they were never credited uh, on records at the time, how they were given sort of more freedom in these early songs to, as, as the style coalesced. Talk about the Funk Brothers a little bit and, and, and this early style of Motown. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, again, Motown wasn't the only record company to have a house band, but the volume uh, of music that they produced um, uh, and the the manner in which the creative teams interacted, uh, the producers and the arrangers and the songwriters uh, with this band, created this really fascinating, I think probably unique uh, example of um, an an incredible and incredibly important um, group of backing musicians in American music history. So um, we often think about six or eight people who are central to this Motown backing band, but in reality, there were probably more like 16 or 18 people who were first call session musicians who came in and out of those studios during the mid-1960s. And it was a pretty good gig. Uh, they they got paid pretty well. the the um, the The rates slowly increased, and they got bonuses. and um, They worked hard. I mean, a, a lot of these musicians were really well versed jazz musicians. and And the cool thing about Motown in the nineteen fifties, uh, in the late nineteen forties, when these musicians were coming through, um, the the uh, the black high schools in Motown pretty fantastic music programs. And there's been a lot of discussion about this uh, being the source of um, some of the some of the important Detroit jazz that happened during the 1950s. And a lot of these performers were jazz performers. And so if anything, they, they uh, performing on Motown tracks was was really easy because the harmonic rhythm was a lot slower. And they basically, uh, you know, are, are playing pretty simple chord changes for a jazz player. But they got really good at taking lean lead sheets with very little on it and 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 turning it into fantastic uh backing tracks over and over again i mean this band they would do uh, oftentimes two and three sessions a day these are three hour sessions so you know 10 to 1 2 to 5 and sometimes an evening session and they were most of the time expected to cut four backing tracks in each three hour session now that didn't always happen, especially for for big tracks like um, "What's Going On" or something like that. That's a little bit different, but thousands and thousands of songs. And so, you know, I mean, they sat in the same places. They used the same uh, studio setup. They used the same instruments. They were the same group of people, and they did this for six, eight, ten years. Some of them, they got really good at it. Um, it's a little different than the Wrecking Crew story from Los Angeles because 
the Wrecking Crew is a little bit of a bigger, bigger group. They worked in different studios. They worked um, in, in a little bit of a looser context than Motown, which really mostly operated out of 2648 West Grand Boulevard, where the where the museum is now in that small room that's referred to as the Snake Pit. So um, you put a group of seasoned jazz musicians uh, in this room, and and you pay them uh, a living wage and higher than a living wage. Um, for years and years, and they got really good at it. I mean, they could they could turn uh, almost nothing into a pretty fantastic groove, uh, not even really knowing what the song was half the time. They, the song, the lyrics and uh, melody might not have even been written, and there are dozens, if not hundreds, of tracks in the Motown vaults that don't have titles, don't have lyrics, don't have melodies, because they were simply uh, the result of a producer. Um, throwing a half-finished lead sheet in front of the band and coming out with a pretty fantastic backing track. And when you've got players like James Jamerson, the incredible bass player, Benny Benjamin, the great drummer, Earl Van Dyke, the whole Funk Brothers crew, definitely the Wrecking Crew is, is the right point of comparison. The only other, you know, uh, uh, King Curtis's combos yeah. in New York, um, uh, Steve Cropper. And the Nashville Booker. guys, you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Booker T and the Stax guys, the the Swampers and Muscle Shoals. But Motown's house band was right up there with the elite of American session players in this era. And I think you can make an argument they were the best of the best. And and the music just baseline after baseline uh, again and again. And within these very tight formal constraints, you know, Mm -hmm. three-minute pop songs, three, four, five-chord songs – heavy on the chorus didn't get to stretch out but you know it's almost like haiku that the discipline forced the band to really achieve in a, in a, in a limited parameters and, and another guy i want to bring up is mickey stevenson mm-hmm. who uh, is credited with helping put the, the band together and also produced a, a, a ton of records one of barry gordy's biggest uh, acolytes especially on marvin Gaye and stevie wonder and others talk about mickey's role in this well, Mickey's one of these interesting characters. You know, he was only there until 67. Um, but he was one of the early people. Um, and, you know, Gordy did a good job in the early days at either mentoring young people and getting them uh, in or taking people that were a little more seasoned and understood more things and bringing them into the fold. People like Mickey Stevenson and Harvey Fuqua and people like that. Um, you know, Mickey was a fantastic producer and he... He was a he was a little bit more of an independent spirit than some of these people, and left um, as people slowly peeled off. You know, he um, he produced some fantastic records. He produced uh, you know Dancing in the Street and things like that. And um, uh, he just one of this of this crew of people that started. By the time he started producing records in '64 and '65, um, you know, by that point, you've got Smokey Robinson, you've got Mickey Stevenson, you've got Harvey Fuqua. Um, you've got Barry Gordy, and there are six or eight other producers who are producing records at the time. And, you know, somebody like that, a uh, fantastic producer who's having to compete to get his records released, is a pretty crazy thing. Um, you know, he he cultivated people like Mickey and put them in, the, in a position where they had creative freedom. Uh, the producer, for for people who don't know as much about Motown's working methods, the producer was like the project manager. I mean, they were really the 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 person who 
they uh, found the song, if they didn't write it themselves, they commissioned the arrangements, they ran the recording sessions, and then they advocated for the song. They'd have to go to these meetings and 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 play it in front of everybody on Friday mornings and and try and get it released. Um, sometimes there'd be two and three things on the same artist at the in the same week. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's amazing when you bring up somebody like Mickey to think that he was among peers. I mean, there were there. It, it's as if Phil Spector is in a room with six other Phil Spectors and and having to compete to get his his, his records out on his own label. Um, it that's the difference between uh, Motown's story in the mid 1960s and Spectre's story in the mid 1960s. Um, it was a it was a pretty crazy thing. And let's let's hear uh, one more tune. This is the Temptations doing "I Wish It Would Rain." And that was The Temptations, led by the great David Ruffin, singing I Wish It Would Rain, which uh, is a Norman Whitfield production. He's a, one of the sort of later blooming talents uh, in the Motown producer stable. And this song is one of a string of songs uh, co-written by Whitfield and Barrett Strong, who uh, sang the song Money, and also a young guy named Roger Pintabine, who uh, lost his wife to a musician and writes a string of huge hits, sad songs, and then mm-hmm. kills himself. Yeah. Which yeah. is sort of, you know, a rabbit trail, a, a side story. But it, it, to me, it's illustrative. This song illustrates the way so much is going on at Motown. You've got the narrative of David Ruffin breaking away from the temptations. You've got the narrative of Norman Whitfield taking the temptations away from Smokey Robinson. Uh, and then you have these little tragic, sad sides narratives like Pinsabine's story. Talk about this song and, and this era of Motown. Well, it, it, that's, it's a great track. It's, it, it's a great track in a number of ways. It's a, it's a classic David Ruffin performance and it's a classic temptations performance. Actually, the, the backing vocals on that track are, um, pretty unbelievable. Um, there are little hints in that track of, of interesting things to come, like the sound effects of the birds and things like that, where, you know, you get a, you get a sense that Motown is on the forefront of creating these these sonic landscapes that help to forward exactly what you're talking about. It's a it's an intense song. I mean, uh, it, it's it's a silly thing to think about. It's actually raining now. I'm looking I'm looking out at the rain as I'm as I'm uh, talking to you, and. You know, most people don't wish it would rain. <laughs> most people, especially this time of year in the spring, you're you're hoping for nice uh, for a nice uh, afternoon where you can sit outside with sunglasses on. But um, it's a song that um, that explores a, a deeper psyche. And um, m- most people, I, I mean, I'm really glad you brought this track up because in um, uh, in the history of Motown, we tend to think about happy, um, dance-oriented, pop-oriented songs, but a lot of the a lot of the tracks, even the Supremes tracks, are uh, when you when you get down to the lyrics, they're they're uh, they're not happy. I mean, they're about people breaking up, and uh, even if it's from the perspective of a teenage girl, 
Uh, it's pretty devastating to a 16-year-old girl when her boyfriend breaks up with her or when uh, she realizes that he's cheating on her or something like that. So this song, I Wish It Would Rain, um, it, it's in a long line from that perspective of songs that deal with black male fragility. The Four Tops did this a lot. There's a lot of crying going on in these songs. Um, you know, teardrops running down my face. And it's in in 67 and 68, um, when these things are happening, we're starting to see more depth projected into these characters. Um, it draws on a long line of, uh, a, a, a long history of, um, of, of things in gospel and things like that, where, where there is opening up. But um, this is doing it in a pop context. And uh, using Ruffin's voice, Ruffin, who's a, just a master interpreter, and the backing band, and Penzamine's lyrics, and Whitfield's production, it all comes together into this pretty unbelievable track. And one other aspect I want to talk about is is this... We're talking about Roger Pinsabine, who's who's an Irish Italian songwriter. Was Motown was an integrated company, and, and it was overwhelmingly black. But key players, and I want to talk about Barney Ailes, who was in many ways Barry Gordy's number two on the business side. He was the head of sales and the head of collections. Talk about how people like Barney Ailes helped Barry Gordy implement his vision of crossover and breaking out into the big market. Well, Barney Ailes is a um it is probably um, the most important Motown character that most people have never heard of. Um, you know, he's this, uh, he's a, he's a, a, a big Italian guy. And it, in fact, his presence at Motown is one of the reasons why a lot of these myths about uh, mafia ties happened because he was, he was a really strong character. I mean, he worked in the music business. And at the time, if you were a, a sales and collection person in the music business, I mean, you had to know people, <laughs> uh, and you and you had to yell into the phone a lot. I think um, Barney was good, and and he uh, he was he was a Detroiter, and he had a long history of um, working in the record business before he came to Motown. He took a big risk himself coming to Motown, which when he came, uh, I can't remember what year he came. It must have been sixty two or sixty three, pretty early on. Um, and it wasn't a, it wasn't an established company yet. It definitely wasn't a company that you would drop everything and uh, and change your career to move to work for the company. Um, uh, it was one of these pieces. It was and Gordy talks about this a lot in his autobiography that as an independent company, especially a black owned independent company, collecting from distributors was the hardest thing. Uh, and he and he talks about this that. Uh, you, you were only as important as your next record. And so in order to get paid for the last record, you had to have another hit. And it was this constant cycle of trying to get money out of distributors 60 to 90 days and having to float lots of cash in order to print things. Alice was a master of this. And not only, is he, only was he a master at selling and collecting, he also was one of the, um, the main um, uh, uh, advocates and one of the on the team, you say he was like the number two, and he really was Esther Edwards, uh, Gordy's sister, and Barney Ailis. And then the, uh, his two lawyers, the Seltzer brothers, were probably um, his most trusted confidants during the mid 1960s. 
sitting around in his office constantly with the phone ringing, um, helping him to, to make strategic moves to decide what to do next, what records to release, um, where to, where to take the company. And so, um, Barry Gordy and Barney Ellis had a long standing relationship. Um, and both of them were able to work, I think side by side doing what they did best, uh, and collaborating on the business side to make it happen. Uh, Motown certainly would not be the Motown we know it without Barney. And and part of this strategy, or part of what work with people like Alice allowed Gordy to do, was things like get the Supremes into the Copacabana, one mm-hmm. of the first African-American performers, definitely the first female African-American performers to play the Copa. Talk about a little bit about what it meant in the early 60s for a black girl group to play the Copa. Well, uh most people, again, tend to think about the Copa and uh, um, middle of the road or MOR music from the time, you know, Andy Williams and, and uh, Frank Sinatra, even in, in the mid 1960s, as kind of cheesy music. Um, but uh, in the first half of the 1960s, uh, these people were the biggest stars in the record business. And um, uh, think about the difference between if you're a, if you're a performer and it's your job between uh, doing one-nighters and uh, traveling around from theater to theater and doing five and six shows a day, um, the difference between that and getting pay- and living on a bus, and if you're black, not having a place to stay and not having a place to take a shower or to eat, and being able to sit down in a major metropolitan area um, where you probably got, I don't you know, just guessing here. I imagine you get paid 10 or 20 times what you get paid to play in a theater in Indianapolis or something like that. Um, and it's the, it's the peak. It's the best gig you could possibly get the Copa and, and the Latin quarter and these, uh, these high end, uh, middle to upper class supper clubs where people would pay a lot of money to see entertainment. So that's one part of it is just the, the finances of it. Um, and the other part is the repertoire. So we talked earlier about the Motown style and how we could, we could, uh, identify the Motown style and, and, you know, we could recreate it, but, uh, you know, Motown wasn't all about that particular style. They ventured into lots of different kinds of music and they, in, in a sense, brought some of the Motown style into a club like the Copa. Uh, forced the Copa to think about a girl group like the Supremes and the potential for them to put on a fantastic show at a supper club. Um, and also took some of the style, the styles, the musical styles and the backgrounds, the Tim Pinelli tunes and things like that, that were really popular at middle of the road venues like the Copa and, and incorporated them into their act. So in 65, you know, Supremes had huge pop-oriented hits on the, ra- on the radio, you know, I Hear Symphony and things like that. But they're also, you know, in the album market, they're making records of uh, Rogers and Hart songs and things like that. Uh, Supremes sing country and western. So the Copa is just sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of Barry Gordy taking the Supremes, um, not starting in the R&B market, moving into the teen-oriented pop market, and then moving even farther than that into the adult-oriented supper club market, which if people didn't think that they could consistently 
move into the teen-oriented pop market, I'm sure they thought, uh, what the hell's going on when they're going into the Copacabana? But they did it. Um, Not all Motown acts were super successful there, but the Supremes did. So lots of people played at the Copa and clubs like that, the Temptations and Marvin Gaye and Smokey Robinson. Uh, And someone like Marvin, for example, wanted to be a, a standard singer and it never really stuck with him. But someone like Diana Ross, really, it's become a formidable part of who she is, this uh, sort of diva-ish, uh, torch song aspect of her career that really started with the move into the Copacabana in 1965. And let's hear a little bit of Diana Ross and the Supremes. This is I Hear a Symphony. the Supreme singing Holland Dozier Holland's I Hear a Symphony. Talk about this song and, and the whole HDH oeuvre and how this how they were evolving into this more florid, more complex symphonic style towards the end of their run. Well, we talked earlier about answer songs and dialogue, and one of the coolest things about um, the creation of a Motown style was, um, and, and it folds into the Motown story, was that uh, the competition among producers was predicated on the idea that um, if a producer had a successful song, they were usually given priority uh, for the next release with that same artist. And so between 63 and 68, when Holland Dozier and Holland were at their height at Motown before they uh, slowed down and eventually left to form their own company, Invictus, um, they had the run of several really important Motown acts like the Four Tops and the Supremes. And so it's a really cool exercise to just take all the Supreme singles, um, all of which were produced by Holland Dozier Holland uh, between 64 and uh, and when Holland Dozier Holland left the company, and just listen to them in a row. And you start to hear these small changes happening, like you're talking about. Um, Higher Symphony is pretty pretty early in that. Um it, it takes a lot of the aspects of a track like Where Did Our Love Go, um, but uh, moves a little farther. I Hear a Symphony has this, this really cool uh, musical interplay uh, with the symphony orchestra. I mean, it, it's about a symphony. Uh, the metaphor in the lyrics is that this teenage girl, when she, you know, when she, when he, when she sees her boyfriend uh, whenever he's near she uh, she hears a symphony, she says. But of course, there's also uh, the strings that we were talking about earlier, the or- the orchestral uh, aspect of it uh, in a masterful string arrangement by Paul Reiser uh, throughout the track. And then there are all these other really cool musical sort of references to classical music, like these big chords on the piano that almost sound like Rachmaninoff or something like that. And then um, three or four key changes at the end that imply uh, a, a more learned style of music. These are the, the deeper things that are happening in these Holland Dozier Holland productions. 
as they're starting to experiment more. And it keeps going. It keeps going in different ways with uh, You Keep Me Hanging On and, and different tracks, uh, Reflections, which, uh, you know, sort of moves into psychedelia. Um, they, they move very quickly. These, these singles are coming out like every three and four months. Uh, uh, so, it, so it's happening. As one track is on the, is on, uh, the top of the charts, you can watch the curves of them sort of go up and down and the next one starts. Um, so they're, they're, they're in dialogue with themselves. And and other people at Motown and some other artists like there's a there's a fantastic I, I hear a symphony is actually uh, kind of a, an answer song um, uh, to the to the toys to uh, a, a New York girl group called the toys to a lover's concerto, which is a, a pretty popular song just as they were writing and recording that track. So this is an example where a Motown answer song, uh, arguably an answer song. Uh, is it was much more popular than the original. Some people don't even know uh, Lover's Concerto, um, but they'll probably know I Hear a Symphony. There are a lot of things going on in that track that make it a really interesting uh, place in the Holland Dozier Holland catalog. And, and let's talk, as we wrap this up, about sort of the losers of the Motown experience. And, and as improbable as it sounds, despite their incredible run, Holland Dozier Holland were one of those losers, well, putting a stop to their career, you know, basically going on strike for two years, leaving the company, never really matching their heights again. You've got Flo Ballard, the founder of the Supremes, who's kicked out of the band. You've got David Ruffin kicked out of the Temptations. You've got all the, you know, Mary Wells, the Marvelettes, Martha and the Vandellas, all the female singers who are not Diana Ross are kind of shunted to the side. Talk about that, like the way, and Detroit, Barry Gordy ultimately yeah. leaves his home city. That's right. Um, it was a it was a financial and creative uh, uh, it was a big thing, and um, it was really hard to maintain. Uh, uh, unfortunately, as most students of popular music history know, creativity and economics are like oil and water, <laughs> and uh, they don't blend well. And they don't they don't always uh, the creative aspects and the creative work and the creative labor are very rarely reflected in the economic results. Um, a lot of people are really fascinated with uh, the latter and the, um, the imbalance between uh, the creative input and the economic output. And they see someone like Barry Gordy selling the company for half a billion dollars and uh, living in Bel Air and Diana Ross being on tour and someone like David Ruffin, who spiraled out of control and um, had a really, really hard last decade. Um, and and it's hard to reconcile that. It's really hard to reconcile. I think it's probably hard for everybody to reconcile that who was part of the Motown process. Um, and there were a lot of people who, um, who did well. And there were a lot of people who came out of the Motown um, experience um, disillusioned and didn't do well. Um, in some ways, uh, I'm not sure that there was a graceful ending, uh, that there was a way that that story could not self-combust. But the way that it did self-combust uh, is in some ways unfortunate. I mean, um, Detroit itself, after uh, the rebellion of 1967, uh, I, I, we all know, uh, saw a steep 
uh, economic and cultural decline. Um, Motown, Motown's departure certainly didn't help. Um, a lot of these artists who uh, had little more than a high school education, even if they did have a high school education, um, were felt like they were left high and dry uh, by Motown uh, changing and moving. Now, of course, the other side of that is, is this is the entertainment business. And, um, you know, to have uh, a 30 or 40 year career is a real rarity. There are far more people in the history of rock and roll, uh, the history of pop music, who see a glimmer of popularity. And that becomes really the only uh, the only thing that they have to hang their hat on. Um, the fact that what I think what hurts a lot of people more in the Motown story is that there is this long financial legacy. Um, there's, uh, it's still a company with name recognition that still sells a lot of records. And, um, I, I think it was imp impossible in many ways to keep everybody happy and everybody going, uh, all the way through the eighties and nineties. Um, it's a tragic tale in, in, in many cases. I mean, we talked about Roger Pensavine, but there are many others, um, that we could, that we could, uh, talk about, um, in the, in, in the tragic side, the losers, as you say, um, uh, including the city of Detroit, um, as, as well as the winners, uh, it makes it a more, I think it makes it a more complex narrative, uh, and asking questions like real questions on both sides, um, about, uh, the, the responsibilities of different people involved. It, it, it gives us a much better sense of how the music business really works. It's not this magic utopia. Um, it is a, a business and, um, and it's hard to, in a capitalist society to keep everybody, um, to keep everybody above board. But they made a lot of great music and they brought a lot of joy to a lot of hearts. And, and, you know, so thank you, Andrew Flory, for coming on the show and telling us about Barry Gordy and Motown. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. And um, it's a great podcast. You guys are doing really great work. So I really appreciate being here. Well, thank you. And the book is I Hear a Symphony and it's from uh, the University of Michigan Press. Thanks again, Andy. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This is the last episode of our fourth season. We're only taking a one-week break before starting Season 5 and our new Thursday show focusing on Mike Judge's Tales from the Tour Bus. I Hear a Symphony, Motown and Crossover R&B is published by University of Michigan Press and is available wherever fine books are sold. <laughs>